city streets and the quiet town boulevards. The scene of the crime is the focal point of every investigation. Here, you've joined the team on a thread of evidence where your mind will be open to the exciting science of forensic investigations. A cult changed my life. Now, not in the way you might think. I was never in a cult or loved someone who got caught up in one. But it was the story of Charles Manson and his cult of followers that first got me interested in forensic psychology. Reading the book, Helter Skelter, I just couldn't understand it. What kind of power did Charles Manson have that he could convince people to commit murder for him? And what was wrong with these people who were so willing to give up their lives and follow someone who seemed so clearly disturbed? Today, cults are still in the news. In June of 2019, the leader of self-improvement cult Nexium, Keith Ranieri, was convicted of several felonies, including human trafficking and sexual exploitation of a child. And it's almost impossible these days to catch the news without someone mentioning Chad Daybell or Lori Vallow, who were under suspicion of being involved in a doomsday cult that may have led to three deaths and two missing children. Welcome to Threat of Evidence. I'm Dr. Joni Johnston, a clinical and forensic psychologist, private investigator, and your host for today's show on mind control, brainwashing, and destructive cults. I am delighted to welcome today's guest, Steve Hassan, a licensed professional counselor who is not only one of our country's most recognized experts on cults and mind control, having written best-selling books such as Combating Cult Mind Control and Freedom of Mind, but brings a personal perspective as a former cult member. Over the past 30 plus years, he has helped hundreds of cult members and their families. Steve, welcome to the show. Thank you, I'm honored. Well, we're just delighted to have you. And of course, I wanna start out by having you tell us a little bit, if you don't mind, about your own personal experience with cults. Sure, well, I'll start by saying I'm 65 years old and my story goes back to 1974 when I was 19 years old and an upper junior at Queens College in New York. And it was a period just after my girlfriend dumped me, I was sitting in the cafeteria at Queens College waiting for my spring semester class to begin. And three cult recruiters pretending to be students flirted with me, asked to sit at my table and started asking me a lot of questions about myself. And I thought I would get lucky with one of them. And that turned into a two and a half year uh, odyssey in a Korean fascist cult group known as the Moonies. They're best known for their mass weddings. Moon actually married 30,000 couples at the same time in a stadium. They were all true believers in him as the Messiah, as 10 times greater than Jesus Christ or Moses or Buddha or anyone else. And we were going to take over the world for, for God and make it a, a Garden of Eden and get rid of Satan and communism. And I can certainly see how a 19-year-old would be flattered and excited about three women coming up to him and all three giving them their undivided attention. But how did that translate into you spending the next two and a half years of your life in a group? Right. So I guess I want to use this opportunity to, to, to teach broader principles, such as the fact that destructive cults, unlike legitimate groups, use deception extensively 
They lie about who they are. They lie about their beliefs. They leave out critical information. They distort it to make it seem palatable to their victims. In other words, there's no informed consent when you're talking about getting involved with a mind control cult. And often people are situationally vulnerable, like I was. My girlfriend dumped me. It could be a death of a loved one, an illness, losing a job, moving to a new city, state, or country that makes someone situationally vulnerable, and is often cross-sexual recruitment done. They use front groups extensively. And in my case, I was not a joiner. I was not looking to change my religious background. I grew up Jewish, but I did, I was worried about how the world was. I wanted to help, you know, contribute to make the world a better place. And, and this, this genuinely positive wish that a lot of people have, especially young people to improve themselves or to improve society or the world is used as a device to get people incrementally into a more and more isolating mind control scenario where their behavior and information, thoughts and emotions are reprogrammed into a new cult identity. This is actually even talked about in the American Psychiatric Association Diagnostic and Statistical Manual as a dissociative disorder. And it's really using the minds of adaptivity and our genetic programmings for survival and our genetic programming to respect authority figures that we are introduced to that seem to be legitimate, as well as to look at our peer group that we identify with and use both our desire to fit in and our desire to follow a legitimate authority figure lures people into this uh, very dark place where you're cut off from your own conscience, your own critical analytic ability. And like most cults, they want to isolate you from any family, friends, or sources of information like former cult members. So they program phobias into people's minds in the cult that uh, terrible things are going to happen to you if you talk to an ex-member or if you think about any of this critical information. So it, it, there is a system to it. And I guess I just want to add, if I may, Joni, that the thing that helped me get out was a near-fatal van crash due to sleep exhaustion. I was sleeping three to four hours a night normally, and I was up for three days without any sleep. And then two weeks in a hospital and then five days of deprogramming with former members that made me start to question again. And the thing that helped me a lot was learning about Chinese communist brainwashing uh, programs of the 1950s. And once I understood what brainwashing was, then it, my, my mind started thinking again about actually what had happened to me. Well, there's so many things that, that occur to me as you're talking and there's so many different ways to go. But I think one thing I would do want to comment on is you talking about situational vulnerability, because when I first started doing some research on cults, and I really did after I read this book, Helter Skelter, and I was 14 years old when I read that book. And when I got older, I was just determined to figure out how could this happen to somebody? And I, like I think a lot of people, was under the belief that there must be some personality of a cult follower 
There must be something intrinsic in that person. And yet, I think that there's a tremendous amount of evidence to suggest that even though there may be some situational variables that can increase somebody's susceptibility, there is no personality of a cult follower that for any of us, given the right circumstances and the right time, we might fall under that influence. Yeah, I, exactly. In fact, the single most important principle of social psychology is called the fundamental attribution error. And what that means is, is that when humans look at other humans and try to figure out why they do what they do, we all have this bias to look at internal variables or dispositional variables and to minimize social influence or situational or contextual variables of, from the outside. That said, we are starting to see is there are some factors that will make people more vulnerable to a predator or a predatory organization, such as insecure or disorganized attachment. Our self is formed in the first couple of years of life, and in particular bonding with mother and father. And if that isn't secure, that creates a, a deep vulnerability within the person. But then on the other side of the equation of influencee is the influencer, the malignant narcissism area of behavior. So when you talk about this kind of influencer, are you, you're looking at variables that are common among destructive cult leaders? The malignant narcissism, absolutely. The grandiosity, the need for attention, the lack of ability to take responsibility, the lack of empathy, and then, of course, the pathological lying, the shaming, the shunning, the paranoia, the inability to trust even allies and friends. So there's a profile there of predators that seems to fit, you know, the Jim Joneses, the Sun Young Moons, the, the Ron Hubbards, the David Koresh, Keith Ranieri, Warren Jeffs, and on and on and on. Interesting. You know, you mentioned Jim Jones, and, and I guess one of the questions I've always had, and I'm sure it varies probably from leader to leader, but when you learn about some of the extreme beliefs that some groups have and particularly some of the kind of supernatural abilities that are given to these leaders and that the leaders are claiming claiming I, right yeah i always wonder is does a person start out in typically i don't believe this i know this is a bunch of bull but i want power i want attention i want all this and so i'm going to create this group or is it this kind of slippery slope because i've heard several people i've actually interviewed a couple of people who were in Jim Jones cult and and both of them said that they felt like at the beginning that his intentions were positive that he really intended to bring different races together and and unify people and that over time it was kind of the old adage you know power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely what, what do you think about that well um, one of the most important books on Jim Jones was the Raven but what I've learned is that he actually learned a lot of the faith healing techniques, ones where he had people pretend that they couldn't walk and then he could, you know, pray and then they could run across the stage. He learned that from other 
the charlatans or cult leaders. I definitely subscribe to the notion of power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. But I see a lot of cult leaders involved with cults earlier in their life, or certainly in authoritarian family systems where they were trained to be obedient to and corporally punished by a parent or parent figure. What I don't see with cults are con artists, you know, the regular criminal con artists who want to size up the mark, make the score and disappear and move on to the next one. Because running a cult and keeping a cult is a lot of work. And what seems to me are people who are truly delusional and think that they're great and surround themselves with only yes people want to start cults. And of course, the universal is they want power, money, and sex. So uh, Steve, are they, are they delusional in your opinion? Do they actually, for the most part, believe what they're saying? So I'm not a forensic expert like yourself, but I would say yes, that they are so full of themselves and so, and their critical frontal cortex ability to reality test and analyze and take in feedback is so minimized that they are delusional. One of the hardest things I think for a lot of people when they look at cults and cult followers, because I think most people do believe it would never happen to me. Oh, absolutely. I mean, people believe that. And I think part of the problem, Steve, it seems to me is that people are seeing individuals who are in a system they've been in for months, years or whatever. They don't see the incremental steps that that person takes. to wind up in that position. And so they look and they see this person and they kind of go, this doesn't make any sense. This is crazy. I would, this would never happen to me. So help us understand what those incremental steps are. Sure. I just want to highlight how important the idea you just conveyed, which is that people think they're invulnerable, that it could never happen to them, but it could happen to other people. And what does help people to wake up is to see a friend or a loved one or someone that they really respect who it does happen to, and then hear their story. And that story is broken down into increments, and then they get it. And they go, aha, that makes sense. Now, having said that, I want to ask a question to you and your, and your audience. Have you ever seen a stage hypnosis demonstration or a clinical or forensic hypnotic. I definitely Uh, have. Yeah. So coming back to what most people have been exposed to is stage hypnosis, where people are made to think they're naked when in fact they're fully clothed, but they act as if they're naked on stage or they think they're a girl when they're a boy or they, you know, they're, they're all kinds of different phenomenon. So how is it possible that in a relatively short period of time, people's imaginations and their concentration can be so changed so that how they're experiencing reality is so radically different than who they were before? And it speaks about the fact that we have an unconscious mind. As much as we like to think that we're rationally making choices throughout our day, 
or actually unconsciously have models or heuristics that we're operating off of automatically. And that, in fact, they're often directing us in not the healthiest way uh, possible. So coming back to, to how does it happen incrementally, I, I have this model that I refer to as the BITE model, and it is, was based on uh, Leon Festinger's cognitive dissonance theory that said we have thoughts, feelings, and behaviors, and that we like to have consistency between our, our beliefs and our feelings and our behaviors, and that we like to reduce dissonance. So if we do something really out of character, we rationalize it or we do something to feel better about it. And this is how human beings learn ethical and good things, but it's also how mind control cults influence people. And so I took the thoughts, feelings, and behaviors and I added information control, which includes deceptive recruitment and use of information about someone's background against them to break down their identity. And I put the, together this thing called the bite model with, with a laundry list of, of sub-variables. So, for example, if you're not sleeping seven to nine hours a night, you're not going to be cognitively as clear-minded and functional. And in the Moonies, I was sleeping three to four hours a night. <laughs> so that's one incremental element, but also getting me away to an isolated location where I had no contact with outside uh, the outside world at all and surrounding me with believers, some of whom were pretending to be newcomers like myself was a, was a major technique. But the use of hypnosis uh, was something, I, it was four years after I got rescued from the Moonies that I, I started learning formally about hypnosis. And when we were in the, the cult, Joni, we would talk in a very special kind of way. <laughs> and it was elicited emotional and cognitive states where your critical analytic mind goes into la-la land and ideas are getting put into your head. So let's take a quick break. When we come back, I want to continue this discussion. We've been talking about some specific strategies it sounds like some of these groups use such as isolation sleep deprivation some form of hypnosis and let's continue because i really want our audience to understand the process that can take somebody from being a person who's in college a person who's in their first job a person who's functioning in the community and then all of a sudden or not all of a sudden it looks like all of a sudden on the outside but the gradual indoctrination process and how that works okay you are listening to a thread of evidence i'm dr joni johnston our guest today is steve hassan we'll be right back Spreading the out loud truth from sea to shining sea. AmericaOutloud.com is the voice of liberty and justice for all. The goal is to deliver a message of truth, inspiration, and hope to the world. To unite people from all backgrounds and beliefs in an effort to advance humanity. We are the vision of the voices. Welcome to the new era in communications. America Out Loud Talk Radio. 
Welcome back to Thread of Evidence. I'm Dr. Joni Johnston, and our very interesting topic for today is cults and mind control. My guest is Steve Hassan, and we were talking about how people slowly wind up in a cult. And you were talking about a really interesting model that you've developed called the bite model. You're talking about different forms of control these cults use, controlling behaviors, information, thoughts, and emotions. But what I want you to do to really help me understand it and our audience understand it is pretend, Steve, that you are going to recruit somebody into a cult. And just tell me how this actually would work. Sure. I just want to state that when we think of cults, we often have an image of people with shaved heads and wearing robes in some commune somewhere, and they're not thinking about a cult of personality where they might get taken over by a woman or a man that they fall in love with, who flatters them and praises them and says that they're the love of their life and who finds out all kinds of information about their background and then uses that information to press on all those vulnerabilities and insecurities and then build a vision of a happy future together in this fantasy of whatever the group is. But it doesn't have to be a religious cult. It can be a therapeutic relationship. It could be a large group awareness training. It could be a religious cult, a political cult a commercial multi-level marketing cult where they're selling a dream of making millions of dollars part-time. So I've had several people that I've worked with mm-hmm. and evaluated who have talked about being in a relationship with someone who was eventually diagnosed as a psychopath. And they've used those very words, Steve. They've said, I felt like I was in a cult with two people in it. Yeah. I was the follower and he or she was the leader. Exactly. So, I mean, that this is the malignant narcissist, the psychopathological liar who is like, Joni, you're the most special woman that I've ever met. I mean, you are so deep and you are so amazing. I feel like I've known you my whole life. And of course, these days, you can actually buy information about people where, or you can look on their Facebook if they have public profiles. But in the day where I was recruiting for the moon cult, I had to elicit this information from people, finding out about their parents, what do they do for a living, do you have any siblings, where are you in the birth order? And in the Moonies, we were told to frame uh, uh, people either as thinkers, feelers, doers, or believers. And if we thought they were a believer, then we would pray with them and we would talk about spiritual things. If they were a doer, we would talk about fixing the planet and fixing all the problems. If they were a thinker, we'd talk about the science conferences that the cult that I was in was doing. Or if they're a feeler, we would love bomb the person. We would find people from their hometown. I think, Joni, you said you were from Alabama. You know, we found find someone from your hometown who is in the cult to, to connect with you, etc. And Kurt Lewin, one of the first social psychologists, talked about unfreezing, changing, and refreezing as a model to break somebody down, their sense of identity. And the number one technique is confusion. Then the changing is the indoctrination of the new beliefs. 
And then the refreezing is the consolidation into the cult identity. So as a moon cult member, there was a Steve Hassan who wrote poetry and was the son of Milton and Estelle Hassan in Flushing, Queens, New York. And then I was made into the Sun Myung Moon's son and Hak Jahan, his wife's true son, the Messiah. And so that cult identity suppressed my real identity. The most effective recruiters um, are minimalistic. In other words, they don't force it on you initially. It's kind of like fishing a little bit where you get a nibble, you know, and you don't set the hook until you think that the fish has actually swallowed the hook. And then you set the hook, but then you give it a lot of room to think it's free and you wear it out until you reel it in. And with human beings, especially if they're in a situationally vulnerable moment in their life where they're confused or they're disoriented, like I had this girlfriend dumped me. I was like, what's up with, with relationships? This is terrible. And the, the women were flirting with me and they were like, wouldn't it be great if you could have the ideal woman as your partner? And it was asked as a question, it would be, yeah, that would be really great. They didn't say, by the way, Moon's going to pick your wife for you and then order you when you can have sex with her and when you can live together. I didn't even know about Moon for several months of the, of the indoctrination. But what I want to explain is that you don't see what you don't see. And unless you're really educated about how cult tactics work, you just kind of let things slide over and over and over again. When I was first approached by the women, I said, are you part of some religious group or something? And they looked me straight in the eye and said, no, not at all. And then, but then the, they, they were like, we're going away this weekend. We're going to have a great time. Come with us. And I'm like, I work as a waiter on the weekends. That's how I make my money. I'm never free on weekends. Sorry. And they were like, oh, come on, we're going to have so much fun. Please, oh, please, oh, please. And they just kept on and on and on. And I said to them, you know, I work every weekend. If I don't have to work some weekends, then maybe I'll go. And by saying that, it set me up for what was going to happen. And two days later, coincidentally, my boss said, you know, when I said, what time do I report for duty? He said, you won't believe it, but they canceled the wedding. Take the weekend off. And so they already had implanted in my mind the idea that the special weekend was meant to be. And now all of a sudden I'm free. So then I agreed. I met with them. They drove up to this mansion in Tarrytown, New York. We're going through the, the entrance and they, and they say, we're going to have a joint workshop this weekend with the Unification Church. And I said, excuse me, no one told me about a workshop and nobody told me about a church. I'm Jewish. I'm not interested. And then they, they did the turnaround, which is a classic mind control technique to make me feel bad that I don't want, that I'm not open to Christianity. What's the matter, Steve? Are you closed-minded? Aren't you open to new experiences? And looking back, at the moment that I realized they had lied to me and that there was a religious thing, 
I should have hitchhiked in the dead of winter, even there were no cell phones in 1974, I should have left. But they were like, oh, come on, Steve, there's no, we're not going back till tomorrow, stay the evening, we'll drive you back in the morning. And then of course, when the morning came, I hadn't slept and the van was gone. And I didn't, again, demand you know, to call the police or to call my, my, my family. So, but, but these are the things where I say to people, at the moment you realize you're in a situation where people have lied to you and you're in a remote thing, get the heck out. And if they don't let you out, make a big stink because they will kick you out because they don't want you to pollute the other people there that they want, are trying to control. So I advise people to stand up and go, excuse me, are you trying to control our minds? I was lied to. I was told that this, this is not a religious group. So how come you're wanting to say a prayer before we eat? I, you know, and make a big stink and then you're kicked out. And that's important information because, you know, really nothing you're describing in terms of how you reacted seems unusual or incredibly passive or what. I mean, I think most people would react that way where you'd, you'd be upset about it and you would protest about it and then you would kind of go along with it, just thinking, okay, well, it is what it is. You obviously were verbal about how you felt about it. How, yep. did, you, how did you feel at the end of that weekend? So it was, again, incremental deceptions where it was like, just stay the day. You, we'll bring you back later. And then, oh, we don't, you know, the phone is not working and the van isn't around. By, by the time Sunday night came around, I'm like, when are we going back home? I have school in the morning. I have classes. And they're like, oh, no, this is a three-day workshop. And I'm like, I'm a student. I want to go back to college. <laughs> Drive me back. Oh, you're going to miss the most important part. How could you leave now? Aren't you curious about the, the hope of humanity and how the world is going to finally come together and wars will be ended and poverty will be abolished? And, and I'm like, I have school. I want to go home. And they talked me into it. They got, they got three on one and, you know, and I agreed. And then after the third night, you asked me how I felt. I remember distinctly because they were giving us feedback sheets at the end of each, each day's indoctrination. So we were literally telling them where we were in our minds. And I remember distinctly the end of the third day, I said, I, I am too overwhelmed to say anything now. And it was an overload. And that is a mind control technique to overwhelm or overload someone with so much emotionally laden information that you, you're, the mind can't digest it, right? And then they started in on with starting a seven-day workshop in the morning, Steve. And, I, and at that point, I got angry as hell. And I said, if you don't drive me back, I'm going to get violent. And you are going to regret it for the rest of your lives. So they finally drove me back at two in the morning to Flushing where I had parked my car. Never mistake, I should have driven myself instead of gone with their van. But then the center director kept me up for another two hours trying to convince me that my whole life was on the line if I didn't stay and keep learning this stuff. And I went home 
I, I stuck to my guns and I went home and my parents were like freaked out. Where have you been? You look terrible. Are you on drugs? They thought I was on drugs because my eyes were like wacky. And my mother immediately said, let's go talk to the rabbi. And I said, fine, let's go talk to the rabbi. And the rabbi had no knowledge about cults whatsoever or the Moonies. So Steve, at what point, because it sounds like up to now, you are a reluctant participant. To at, say the least. Yes. At what point, because I know you mentioned that you had spent the next two and a half years with this group. At what point did it start feeling to you at the time like this was a voluntary action on your part? So I went to see the rabbi. What the rabbi should have said to me is, Steve, I know nothing about the unification movement, the unification church, but I can assure you if it's legitimate, it will stand up to scrutiny. Promise me you're going to take a, a couple of weeks, not have any contact with them, and let's research this group. That would have worked. What he thought was that I wanted to convert to Christianity, and he offered to study Judaism with me. And what had been planted in my mind was the idea that the Messiah was coming to save the planet. And Jews do have a concept of a Moshiach. You know, it's not emphasized like Christianity emphasizes Jesus. But that's what and I wanted to know. Is it possible that God has sent the Messiah now? Right? I didn't know it was moon yet. This was going to happen months later. But the Moonies had put this idea in my head for three days of indoctrination. And I was at home. I had trouble concentrating on my schoolwork. And I had what I thought was a spiritual experience where I was sitting on my bed in my bedroom. And I looked down at a book that was half opened and I picked it up and I looked at the first paragraph where my eyes rested and it talked about historical time periods and, and how it mattered most if you're in a historical time period and there is a spiritual master on earth that this, this was going to be the pivotal moment. And and my brain connected that to the moon cult, where I started going, it, oh, and I need to say this to you, Joni. It just brought back a powerful memory. The end of the three days of the workshop, the lecturer, and I, and I know this because I was in the cult and I was a lecturer, the lecturer says to the people in the audience, so we've covered a lot of important information in the last three days. And maybe there's a part of your mind that's thinking, this is all a bunch of rubbish. But on the other hand, what if, what if, and they always do it in threes for emphasis, what if it's true? Would you miss the son of God? Let us pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, Father, we are your children. The world is suffering so much, Father. Please open up our heart. And then the person would pray for like 40 minutes. Steve, what percentage of the other people who were there at this workshop were young people? 
Oh, I think everybody was under 30. I would say most people were 18 to 23 or four. When you're, when you're younger and you're trying to figure out who you are and what you're going to do for a career and what life is all about, you're going to be more open to alternative points of view. It's just the way human beings are. Well, and that's a strength. I mean, that's developmentally appropriate, like you were saying. I have a daughter who's a freshman in college, and I had a lot of talks with her before she left mm -hmm. about social influence and about cults and about people trying to invite her to different things and how she can be discerning. And because I would think that colleges would be a breeding ground for recruiters. To yes, they are. And, and what's happened is, is cults are online predominantly, recruiting through a myriad of front organizations that sound good. They sound like they're fighting sex trafficking, but they're actually a, a mind control cult, or they're, they're trying to fight global climate change, or they're trying to offer you uh, a, a, a date. When I was studying ISIS recruitment online, a few years ago, a lot of their devices were to match you up with a mate, to, to find you a wife or a husband. And they would quickly steer people off of the public uh, internet to the dark web and start surrounding them. And what we're learning about the internet and the interface with the brain is that we can actually be recruited online and indoctrinated online. We don't need to be in an isolated physical environment anymore. That has been one of the most surprising things that I've discovered recently is the use of the internet and online for cults to recruit because my understanding, and I know that historically it has been that way, one of the most powerful tools, of course, was to get somebody away from their family and their friends and their typical social environment because being in that state, they're more susceptible. But it sounds like what you're saying, and what I've also read is that you don't need that. You can do that online. Exactly. So I've worked with people who've been recruited into online cults including uh, white power supremacy cults as well online. And uh, really, everyone needs to be educated about how the mind works and what undue influence is like and how to protect yourself. And what I said earlier, that if someone's legitimate or some group is legitimate, it will stand up to scrutiny. So avoid any high-pressure tactics to get you involved really quickly and Such do independent as? research. Don't just trust the recruiter, to be honest, because cult recruiters were lied to when they were inducted and they're doing to you what was done to them. So, so some of the high pressured techniques online would be what? So it's pretty sophisticated where you might join a discussion board on something and there are cult members who are pretending to be newcomers. There are cult members who are taking the pro and then the con argument and trying to engage you to start sharing. And the more you start sharing about yourself and what you believe, you start to align with those that you identify most with. They will do what the equivalent of love bombing was when I was in the moon cult. They'll do swarming 
online where people will be reinforcing the behaviors they want and beliefs that they want and undermining or negating or even punishing behaviors they don't want. But there's always, you know, the carrot and the stick kind of thing where you want the goodies. You want to have the knowledge, the information, the insights that the guru or the cult leader is offering. The universal mind control technique is what I call phobia indoctrination, which is the implantation of irrational fears. The terrible things will happen to you if you don't follow the leader, the doctrine, or the group. So if you don't do this, Joni, you're going to go crazy. You're going to go insane. You're going to be in a mental hospital and they're going to give you a lobotomy or you're going to be hit by a car or you're going to have evil spirits and demons, you know, possess you. Oh, and, and in the Moonies, by the way, we were all brought to see the Exorcist movie in 1974 and Moon said this movie was made by God and it was a prophecy of what would happen if we left the Unification Church. And someone who didn't believe in spirits or Satan before I met the group, now then I was totally afraid of my own thoughts. And so I was taught to do a mind control technique on myself called thought stopping, which is a legitimate clinical technique where we teach our clients who are depressed how to identify their negative thoughts and stop them and say a positive thought right? Except in a mind control cult, any doubt or question of the leader, the doctrine, or the group is designated as evil. And you are taught to do this thought stopping on yourself, whether it's chanting, praying, meditating, whatever technique. So do you remember a time when you were in the middle of it that you found yourself thinking, how did I end up here? I didn't think any negative thoughts for two and a half years. And it was only on the fifth day of my deprogramming when I started to connect in my brain with my true self, that Moon was a liar and he was therefore untrustworthy. And if God was a God of truth, which is what the Moonies taught when I was a lecturer, that's what we taught. How could a liar be a representative of God once those dots started to connect in my brain, I, I started to cry. And I went like, what have I been believing these years? All the people I've recruited, all the energy and time and effort, it was all a lie. So when we come back from our break, I want to spend the rest of our time talking about getting out of it and some of the work that you do. But I, I still want to follow up in, in terms of Your experience, it sounds like, was so difficult when you were in it in terms of you're not sleeping, you're having to do all this work for free, your life is very structured, there's limited freedom, and yet you're saying to me, I never really had any negative thought when I... No, that's right. So what did you think? Well, I was thought that I was going to run my own country when we took over the world. That's what Moon was telling me. I was a highly regarded leader in the cult, and I was wearing a three-piece suit. And, and part of this messianic chosen people, we knew God's work on earth like no one else. So we felt very superior to everybody else. The work that you were doing and all the physical exhaustion in your mind was kind of 
paying your dues or kind of preparation? Yeah, I was a holy warrior for God to save the world from Satan. We'll take a quick break. When we come back, and again, let's shift gears and start talking about getting out and the work that you do and helping people do that. This is Dr. Joni Johnson, and you are listening to Thread of Evidence. This is Dr. Ron Martinelli, forensic criminologist and host of A Thread of Evidence on America Out Loud. If you'd like to find out what forensic criminologists really do in the field, and you're tired of the false narratives about law enforcement and want to unpack the cases that I've worked throughout the nation, then please pick up a copy of my new book, The Truth Behind the Black Lives Matter Movement and the War on Police, on sale right now at Amazon.com. That's the truth behind the Black Lives Matter movement and the war on police at Amazon.com. Welcome back to Threat of Evidence. I'm Dr. Joni Johnson. We're having a fascinating conversation about his experience in a cult and the work that he does, which is incredibly important in helping victims of undue influence and their families. So, Steve, you mentioned at the very beginning of the show that you had this horrendous car accident and that fortuitously actually helped you eventually get out of the cult. Mm -hmm. So tell me how that deprogramming started for you. Yeah. So um, I fell asleep at the wheel of a fundraising van on the beltway of Baltimore, drove into the back of a tractor trailer truck at 80 miles an hour and rescue workers saved my life. They were afraid it would blow up. It was leaking gas, and they didn't have the jaws of life yet, and they were sawing off the door to get me out of this crumpled wreckage. And I was in more pain than I'd ever been in my life and was in the hospital away from the cult, sleeping and eating. And I had been under orders not to talk with my family, tell them where I was, But there I was without all the constant reinforcement of the cult. And I reached out to my sister, Thea, who I have two older sisters, and we were always very close. And she was the one person in my family and friends who never said I was in a cult or I was brainwashed. She only said, I miss you. I don't understand. I'm worried about you but she never said I was in a cult or brainwashed. And I reached out to her on the phone. I told her I was in the hospital and she says, oh, I wanna take care of you. And you have a nephew you haven't met. I want him to know his uncle Stevie, come and visit. And I started thinking, I really wanna see her. And then I made her promise not to tell my mother or father or my oldest sister, because they were Satan. And she promised. And I was a leader, so I was able to talk the cult into letting me go instead of being attended to because I had a big cast on my right leg and my left leg was a mess. I was on crutches. I talked uh, my leader into letting me go visit my sister for a few days. And fortunately, my sister broke her promise, told my parents who had met former members of the Moon Cult And back then in 1976, it was illegal to hold someone against their will. But my family loved me and they were that worried about me. And I literally had almost died. And so the intervention started illegally. They took my crutches away 
And that would never have worked with me because I had been primed to be a good soldier for God against Satan. But my father basically did the unexpected, and that was he looked me in the eye and he started to cry. And he said, how would you feel if your son, your only son, met a group, dropped out of college, quit his job, donated his bank account, and got involved with a controversial group and disappeared? How would you feel? And the tears just touched my authentic self in a very deep way. And I stepped into his shoes at that moment and looked at the last two and a half years from his point of view. And I could see that he genuinely loved me and was concerned about me. And I said to him, I'd probably be doing what you're doing now. And I was still totally a fanatic believing in Moon. But my father said, we just want you to hear another perspective. We want you to have information. And then if you want to go back to the group, at least we'll know that we did the responsible thing. And so then I started thinking, if I say no to my father, then I have to fight this whole process. The group will probably make me sue my family and put them in jail, which I don't want. I'm of no use to the group anyway in my physical condition. So I'll make a deal that I'll voluntarily listen and my father will drive me back at the end of the five days. So it became voluntary at that point and I promised they wouldn't try to run away and that I would listen. And I did listen and I fought the deprogrammers all the way. I didn't admit that they were getting to me up until the very last day when my brain kind of like opened up and I realized my family was justified because I was brainwashed because everything about Chinese communist brainwashing, the eight principles that Robert J. Lifton wrote about in Thought Reform and the Psychology of Totalism in 1961, fit the, the unification family. And so, so what, what were the deprogrammers telling you during those five days? What were they doing? You have to understand part of the indoctrination of cult members is to vilify ex-members. So they are all into drugs, sex, and rock and roll. They're evil people. They don't love God. They're not spiritual anymore, etc. And the opposite was my experience with the ex-members, that they were fair, kind, compassionate, intelligent, spiritual in fact, the woman was someone I had recruited into the moon cult. So she was what we were referred to as spiritual child. So this woman, Gladys, who has since become a social worker, I actually have a thank you on my website, freedomofmind.com, thanking her and Nestor, who's a psychiatrist. Those were two of the four deprogrammers for helping me get out of the cult. So the things they were sharing with me, they would tell me a terrible story of something that happened while they were in the cult. They were left out all night in freezing cold fundraising. And I would think, oh, I have much better story than that. I was almost knifed in the stomach in Harlem when I was fundraising, but I wouldn't tell them that, but I would have the thought. And so they were surfacing specific negative experiences that I had had in the cult that I had suppressed or minimized or was kept so busy 
that I didn't think about it. But I, I do remember on the fourth day, they were making direct parallels with Hitler. And I remember at one point getting angry when they were getting too close. And I said, I don't care if Moon is like Hitler. I've chosen to follow him and I'll follow him to the end. And, and then I had this, this thing go down my spine. It's chill that a Jew was saying, I'm going to follow him if he's like Hitler. Because I was educated about the Holocaust for the first 19 years of my life. So my whole thesis and my work helping to coach families and friends how to help people get out of cults is based on this experience where I truly believe that people's authentic selves are still intact. They're suppressed by the cult identity. And the way to help people exit is to empower the real self by teaching about social psychology, hypnosis, about how other cults work, and asking questions in a respectful, thoughtful way that help them connect the dots of how it's uh, essentially a parallel. I don't try to tell them they're wrong. I don't attack the leader directly until after the person's starting to put the, the, the dots together. Now tell me about the advice and you've given us some clues in terms of some of the good things it sounds like that your family did. But when people come to you, parents or siblings or spouses of somebody that they think is getting involved in a destructive group, mm -hmm. what advice do you give them? So uh, good, good question. So I've written several books. I have a lot of free videos. I say educate yourself first and don't try to talk the person out of it. Don't say it's a cult and they're brainwashed. I'd say 95% of all my clients who contact me have already done all the wrong things. And that's why they're calling me because they've tried the rational argumentation approach and it's only driven the person deeper into it. What I like to recommend is to rebuild rapport and trust by remembering the, the good times together, the happy experiences, and taking the position of, hey, you're an intelligent person and I love you and I respect you. Help me understand what you are understanding. Help me step into your shoes. And when the cult member says, come to a meeting and listen to the lecture, say to the person, well, you know what? I trust you. I'd rather not listen to a stranger. Why don't you explain what this group believes and what it's all about? And in other words, walk with them, not in a judgmental way, but taking this position of, look, if it's legitimate, it will stand up to scrutiny. That's got to be so hard for some families, especially parents, I would think, because I, I can only imagine that desperation and panic some parents must feel. Absolutely. I'd say universally, that's the parental heart is... They, they see the danger and they, they want to end the danger right away. Only if someone is over 18 or 21, you know, trying to be forceful about it, it, it really boomerangs. But that's why I like to talk to siblings. I like to talk to childhood friends, aunts, uncles, neighbors, coaches, clergy. And, and I build a, a trustworthy team to ethically influence the person to start questioning and thinking for themselves. 
And so it's a process that gets people into a mind control cult, and it's a process to help them liberate themselves out of that. And last question would just be, how do the actual people who are in a cult get to you? That must be a huge hurdle, I would imagine, if they're really involved in the cult, why they would even come see you. Right. So there are two primary populations, people born into a cult, and maybe they ran away or they were kicked out of the cult, or people like me that was recruited at age 19 and such. People find me because I'm in the media a lot, and I try to share information about a variety of different mind control or cult situations. And I can't tell you how many people have contacted me who were picked up combating cult mind control, thinking, I'm not in a cult, but let me read this guy's story about the Moonies and what his work is about cults. And they read the book, and then they, you know, the lights turn on, and they're like, damn, I was in a cult all these years. And then they often call me, and they say, you know, what do you help, recommend? Help, help, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and part of the part of any mind control relationship or cult is making you think that there's something wrong with you if you doubted or if you've left the group or were kicked out of the group. And it's so healing for people to listen to other people's stories and other cults and to realize, holy mackerel, they're really smart and they got taken in. And here's how they did it. Well, unfortunately, we're out of time, but I do think your last words are particularly important and that it really does seem like intelligence has little to, if anything, to do with who can be recruited into a cult and that it's important for all of us to be educated about social influence and how that can be used for good or for ill. Yeah, and, and have, be humble. You know, if you say, you know what, I don't think I could be conned. I don't think I could fall in love with the wrong person, but you never know. Let me stay connected to people I, I trust. Let me always stay connected to my conscience and my, and my critical thinking. And there is research about how mind control cults operate. So I can always get a consult if I need one. Well, thanks again, Steve. We'll be sure that we put all of your contact information on the website when the show airs. Because I think it's important so for people to reach you. You've been listening to Thread of Evidence. See you next time.